Father, we do acknowledge that our hope is in Christ because you have shown him to be our hope. You have revealed to us our sin before a holy God. You have revealed to us a mediator, a savior, a substitute in the Lord Jesus Christ. And every promise that is yes and amen in him. And Christ, you are our hope in life and death. We do not wish for death morbidly, but we do wish to leave this world to be with you because that's where our heart is. And we do long to be in your presence and free from the, this body of sin so that we might love you and adore you and one another and uh, for all of eternity. So keep us fixed on that great day. And even as we take your table this morning, which is itself uh, commanded by you and ordained by you as emblems, as reminders, as symbols, as pointers to these great truths. For we proclaim your death until you come. And we are reminded of the greatness of our salvation in you. So prepare our hearts for that and, and please help us as we look at a topic this morning in which uh, is broad and wide. But we do ask that you would make it profitable to our souls for your glory. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Um, the clock is broken again, but as I told the membership class, I downloaded an app so I can keep an eye on it, and there it is. So I am watching the time, for better or worse. Better for you, worse for me, I think. Well, we're continuing, uh, as I note, each week our ascent to the book of Revelation. That's going to be the mountaintop when we actually get there. And uh, I'm very excited about uh, doing so. But there are several messages that, need to, that I think are going to be helpful to prepare us in terms of uh, and to, to tackle this book, to look at uh, this great revelation of the end of this age and all that God has revealed to us about it. And as you know, that these are topics are, are uh, high and deep and broad and there's many intricacies uh, that attend it. And part of those intricacies, or one of those, is the reality of different systems of understanding how God has decided to relate to us as human beings, as his image bearers in this world, to relate to us both in creation and ultimately in redemption. So what I want to do is this morning is take some time, now this is a bit uh, pedantic in detail, a little bit off of what we would usually do, and I've wrestled with this all week, you know, how to approach this, but I do think it's helpful. And this morning we're going to look at uh, the two systems that really shape the, the landscape, as it were, of Christianity and our understanding of God's purposes for the end of the world. And even now, in terms of details of how we understand the church and, and other aspects of what it means to be in Christ. And that is, and so that is our goal this morning. And so I'll try to, to, to cover these as, as simply but as faithfully as I can. Uh, next week what we'll do is we're going to look at the different kinds of approaches to the end times, to eschatology, and the way that it's understood. And we'll focus primarily on the way that we understand it and what we teach here as a church. And then we'll move into the book of Revelation itself and we'll overview a revelation and introduce it the way that it's understood and then we'll start finally you're thinking when uh, with chapter 1 verse 1 and we'll make our way through and it'll take as long as it takes 
But as I mentioned earlier, there are essentially uh, two systems of theology, ways of understanding the overall structure of God's redemptive relationship with man. And these two systems of theology uh, dominate the church's landscape and particularly have so since the Reformation period in terms of distinct systems of thought. Uh, They are, as you may know or figured out, uh, and if you read the title, you have, uh, it is covenantalism and dispensationalism. Covenantalism and dispensationalism. Uh, Now, as I said, we're going to cover these uh, broadly, but hopefully in a way that's helpful and to prepare our minds uh, for what is to come. But we are some familiar with these words, but not exactly familiar with what they are, what they actually teach, or what the implications are for the church and for our understanding of the end times and so on and so forth. Now, both of these systems have elements represented throughout the history of the church. But as I noted, it's not until after the Reformation period that they took shape as well-defined systems. Uh, Both of these systems represent different understandings among the brethren, among the church. In other words, as we understand these systems and those who would align with one or the other, we have to understand this is an in-house discussion. This is a discussion that takes place among Christians, among the brethren. We're not talking about those who are inside of Christ's grace or outside of Christ's grace. We're talking about those who share the same inheritance, the same salvation, the same hope that we have. So this is an in-house discussion, as it were. Each system of covenantalism and dispensationalism has various understandings uh, related to the church, the ordinances of the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper, hermeneutics, which is simply the method of interpretation, how we understand what God said, how we know what he meant, and eschatology, which is the study of the last things. The areas of discussion and debate regarding these systems is vast and wide. It involves exegesis. The biblical text itself, it involves biblical theology, it involves systematic theology, it involves church history. It is, a, it is a huge topic of discussion and understanding. And as I noted, within each of these, there are variations, uh, there are distinctions, even of those who among would call themselves covenantalists or those who would call themselves dispensationalism. But even still, there are certain distinctives that would mark one as in the camp, one camp or the other. And that's what we'll try to focus on this morning. We're not going to go in all of the details and understand the distinctions and so forth. But I want to start by saying there are then very large and fundamental areas of agreement and there are some areas of disagreement. Both a covenantalist and a dispensationalist would agree on the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. That would be their sole guide. All of the arguments would essentially be sought to be made from the text of Scripture itself. Although we'll fine-tune that a bit. Both covenantalists and dispensationalists understand salvation by faith alone and God's promises as the way that God has always saved his people, his elect, from the fall in the garden all the way to the end of this age. Salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone. It is faith in the promises of God, the revealed will of God, even as it has progressively been revealed and added uh, on through the history of redemption. Hebrews 11 makes that very clear. Both believe that salvation is ultimately accomplished in Christ, who is our substitute, or is our mediator, who is our savior, who has provided atonement for our sin, who has defeated death, who is raised from the grave, who is raised from the grave, who has ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he is right now making intercession for the saints, and who will return one day to judge the living and the dead. Uh, 
Both hold to that. Both hold to a future eternal state of both the righteous and the wicked. A bodily, physical resurrection of the wicked and the righteous to be forever in their eternal place, as it were. And there's other points of agreement. But it is these things then that, that bind us together as brethren. And, and both of them, in, in their understanding of how God's uh, scripture in revelation of himself is to be understood, hold that the ultimate end is to the glory of God. That everything he does, he does as a sovereign God who sits on his throne and ultimately to his glory in Christ Jesus. So we embrace one another as brethren. There are, however, disagreements that cause us to view things a little bit differently. Now, just as a footnote here, if you were to want to know how does this work out in the life of the church, this typically covenantalists would be Presbyterians uh, and uh, dispensationalists would be, well, us. Uh, community church and so forth now there's uh, it's a little bit more mixed than that overall but uh, that's generally how it's uh, divided up in 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 the broadest possible way what are some of the disagreements well some of the disagreements are how we are to understand scripture how we are to interpret scripture in terms of God's plans and purposes for his people and particularly as it relates to his plans and purposes through the nation of Israel and through the church it's, uh, there's difference in understanding in the overarching guiding principle of hermeneutics. And again, hermeneutics is simply this. Uh, it's the art and science of interpretation. It's how we understand what God meant by what he said. Okay, and we'll talk about that a little bit more as we go on. That's one of the main points. And there is a d- disagreement on the relationship of the two covenants in between Israel and the church. And how we even define the church and how we are to understand certain aspects of the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. However, we're not going to get into all of that. My purpose this morning is simply to do my best to, in the most clear and simple way, to define what these two systems are. And I, and I hope to make it all the way through. If not, we'll, we'll finish it up next week. But to what they are and the implications that they have for our understanding of the end times, our understanding of God's purposes for the end times. Let me begin by just filling out one point, and this is the first point, is namely the, the connection with church history. The connection with church history. Uh, first of all, let's begin with covenantalism. Covenantalism as a defined theological system was first of all probably around the late 16th century, often it's said to have come around in the 17th century. Uh, There are various theologians, I won't give you all of the names. Uh, One, however, who's usually identified as the first to give the clearest uh, system of what has come to be known as covenantal theology. And I'm going to hopefully not mess his name up too much, but it's Johannes Cotius. Uh, 1603 to 1669 was his life. And one noted that he developed the classical statement on covenant theology. Now, there are precursors to certain elements of both covenant theology and dispensational theology uh, throughout all of church history. You can pick which father you want and find elements in the early patristics. So those would be those in the early church, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th century, and and beyond that. Uh, But early church fathers. Uh, After the time of Constantine, if you'll remember, in the 4th century AD, many of you will remember, there was this seismic shift in the life of the church, the persecution 
uh, after experiencing one of the worst persecutions under the Roman Emperor Diocletian, went uh, away slightly gradually, but in a, in a very short period of time, it essentially was eliminated, and the church entered into a new era, an era of one of freedom, and from being persecuted to having prestige, essentially. And there was a mirroring of the the church and the state and a, just a variety of things out of that. But there was a shift. The church no longer was this persecuted and scattered minority, but it, it began to have uh, acceptance not only among the culture, but official acceptance uh, even by the Roman government. Constantine himself professed faith in Christ. Whether he was a genuine believer is another question, but he professed faith in Christ and gave the church, Christians, a privileged position in government and in society. And so it was really after that period that the, the ideas related to covenantalism really began to take more shape. And although covenant theologians would make a distinction between the covenant theology of the Middle Ages, uh, nonetheless it does is an offshoot of that. And the covenant theology of the Middle Ages would really be that theology of the Roman Catholic Church. Some of you came out of the Roman Catholic Church. Many of us are at least vaguely familiar with some of the ideas of the Middle Age uh, Roman Catholic Church. And they understood covenant in a confused sense, which was confronted and rejected by the Reformers. But namely is the idea of God's people on the earth... And they mixed, however, that with an understanding of the law, whereas the righteousness of God's people was mediated through the church and justification was mixed with the individual's own obedience and practice of faith. In other words, it wasn't justification in the finished work of Christ. It was justification as it was worked out in the individual's life through their participation with the teaching of the church. Dispensationalism as a defined theological system developed around the 18th century and is usually associated with John Nelson Darby, who was a Plymouth Brethren. As with covenantalism, uh, dispensationalism had, uh, the ideas of dispensationalism were also present uh, in the early church and can be seen in patristic writers. So those are early writers of the church in the first centuries of the church. And it really was a dominant position until the time, as I mentioned, of Constantine. As a matter of fact, one said this. It was not until the Roman Empire converted to Christianity in the 4th century that there was a move away from an belief in an impending apocalypse. Some of this will make some more sense as we go. But let me just give you one example, and I'm going to skip over others. But let me give you this one. This is by an early church father known as Lactantius. And he writes this. Therefore, peace being made and every evil suppressed, that righteous king and conqueror will institute a great judgment on the earth, speaking here of Christ, respecting the living and the dead, and will deliver all the nations into subjection to the righteous who are alive, and will raise the righteous dead to eternal life, and will himself reign with them on the earth, and will build the holy city, and this kingdom of the righteous shall be for a thousand years. And that is... Essentially, what dispensationalism teaches is that Christ will reign on earth for 1,000 years in the future. Now, that's just a general, general introduction to it. What do these systems actually mean? What do they teach? Well, let's look at them. And we're going to talk about more specifics as we go through Revelation itself and in the messages coming. But this, so this is, again, a very broad introduction and overview. So let's begin with just a general definition then of covenantalism. What, what, is, what is it? 
Well, as the name implies, again, it is a system of theology that's centered around the idea of covenant. That's centered around the idea of covenant, and specifically God's covenants with man related to his purposes on earth and in redemption. Covenantalism, then, is a covenant-focused understanding of how God relates to humanity. Now, let me just say that both dispensationalists and covenantalists recognize the significance of God's explicit covenants in Scripture. And those are the ones we're familiar with. The covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with David, the the new covenant, the Mosaic covenant. Those are all recognized. However, covenantalism sees those not... It sakes the idea of covenant and understands all in the entirety of God's relationship through that idea, both from eternity past to the eternal future. One summarizes it in this way. Reformed theology is synonymous with covenant theology. It is important to remind ourselves that we are not treating the covenant motif as a central doctrine. It is not a matter of reducing everything in the Bible to the covenant, but of recognizing the rich covenantal soil in which every biblical teaching takes root. In other words, that's what's behind all of Scripture, is this idea of covenant. Well, what is a covenant, you might be asking? Well, the general idea of a covenant is this. It's a relationship between two parties which is built upon promises and vows, mutual promises and vows. Covenant as it relates to God's relationship to man could be described this way. An unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of their relationship. In other words, it's a legal relationship, but it's also an intimate relationship. And it's one that has commands. It's one that has consequences of whether there's obedience to those commands, blessing, or curses in disobedience to those commands. I'm going to not spend time on this, but there is, this was uh, mentioned actually in a conversation last week, (laughs) believe it or not, Uh, an understanding of covenants related to the ancient Near East, and sometimes uh, it's referred to as a suzerain vassal covenant. And that is made, for many within covenant theology, to made as the paradigm, the framework, the analogous kind of relationship that God has with his people. And essentially, in this suzerain vassal relationship, you have a greater power, a leader, a king, who enters into a relationship with a vassal state who is weaker. And this relationship is one in which the king provides provision for them, protection for them, an agreement that this vassal state will give obedience to this, higher, this greater power. One described it in this way, a suzerain, suzerain was a great king like an emperor, while a vassal was what we would call a client state. And so there was a mutually dependent relationship, but clearly consisting of a greater and of a lesser. And so many times, if you were to read that material, that is the foundational covenant that is used as the backdrop to how God relates to his people. The covenant idea of the great king God who has his vice regents, his vassal, his lesser, his creation, man in his image. And he enters into a relationship with them, one of covenant relationship, wherein is in creating them, he promises blessing and provides for them protection and every good thing. And they, in response, are required to give him their obedience. Now, part of what makes up covenantal theology 
is this. Uh, it is three, it is three, three theological covenants. So beyond those covenants that uh, are revealed explicitly in Scripture, again, the Noahic covenant, the covenant God made with Noah about not destroying the earth with water, the covenant that God made with Abraham, the covenant that God made with David, and the new covenant are the primary ones recognized. They, there are three theological covenants that, frame, that form the framework of the system. They are the covenant of redemption, the covenant of works, sometimes known as the covenant of creation, and then the covenant of grace, which is the primary covenant in that system, the covenant of grace. Now, there is debate within covenantalism on these three. Some do not see the covenant of redemption or the covenant works as formal covenants, but all agree on the covenant of grace. All agree on the covenant of grace. Well, let me briefly explain what these covenants are. First of all is the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption is an eternal pact made between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to create a people knowing their fall into sin, but with the purpose of redeeming them at the cost of God the Son, bearing the wrath for their sin to fulfill God's requirement of righteousness on their behalf, and to send the Spirit who will enable the Son in his mission to accomplish his mission and will apply the work of the Son to a people whom God has chosen before the foundation of the world, namely the elect, to live with him forever in love and fellowship and joy. One describes it this way. The covenant of redemption is an eternal pact between the persons of the Trinity. The Father elects a people and the Son as their mediator to be brought to saving faith through the Spirit. This covenant already takes the fall of the human race into account. Now we see examples of this eternal agreement between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. There's no debate there. Paul says, if you'll remember in Ephesians chapter 1, that if you are a Christian, you were chosen in Christ for adoption before the foundation of the world. One of the key points of Paul in Ephesians is that the accomplishment of salvation in Christ, his being head over a new humanity, one new body, is not an afterthought. It is the eternal purpose of God. It is why he created anything. Was that the son could become man. We've talked about this recently. And that he could redeem a people and bring them into this intimate fellowship of the Father and the Son. There's many other places. 2 Timothy 1.9 says that he saved us and called us with a holy calling. We read this last week. According to his own purpose and grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Paul talks about that in Romans 8. That we are foreknown. We are predestined. We are called. We are justified. And will be glorified. Speaking there of the elect. However, one critique of this is when it is made, when this covenant, uh, when this pact between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is given specific qualities of a covenant and made to be the primary way that we are to understand the rest of God's covenant works. On this point, even one covenant theologian May, acknowledges and he says reformed theology in our day or reformed theologies in our day are not unanimously persuaded that the eternal degree decree can be formalized as a covenant on the basis of exegesis uh, that's michael horton in, in a book explaining covenant theology in other words that's not unanimous, unanimously agreed on but covenant redemption is important in that system next is covenant of works or covenant of creation 
Some of you are familiar with the Westminster Confession of Faith, and it states this. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was, was granted to Adam and to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. Another noted this, that the elements which constituted the covenant works are not formally stated in Scripture, but they are nevertheless clearly implied. So they would say then that there are two parties, God and man, a greater and a lesser. There is the promise, blessing if you obey, a curse if you disobey. In this case, it was to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That there was a symbol, there was an evidence of this, and that is the tree of life itself. And therefore, the elements of the covenant are there, and it is a covenant of works. And it is through that covenant of works that God then bases his relationship with man in order for them to know the fullness of his blessing and his purpose in creating them. The, this covenant grounded in God's blessing and required of man's obedience is essential to how all of his blessings were to be brought into our experience. In this way, Adam serves as a federal head, a representative of humanity, the one with whom God entered into covenant. Adam failed in his responsibility to be obedient Christ, the second Adam, did not fail and accomplished everything that God required of man. A third component, and this is the key one, is the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace. And this speaks of, really there's two different ways that this is talked about. Uh, one is that the covenant of grace is applied, and it's really interesting, it sometimes is talked about in connection with, right alongside with, the eternal covenant of redemption. In other words, it's referred to as an eternal covenant. As a matter of fact, one says this. Uh, the covenant of grace is a compact or agreement made from all eternity among the divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The covenant of grace was made before the creation of man, though it was first made manifest quickly after his fall, and the sum and substance of which lies in those words, the seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head. Genesis 3.15, what we know as the proto-evangel. The first preaching of the gospel. And so it's referred to in that case as an eternal pact or covenant. But it is most often and very often limited to that very promise that God made in Genesis 3.15, and sometimes it's referred to as that as the beginning of the covenant of grace. As a matter of fact, again, from the, uh, referring to the Westminster Confession of Faith, it says this, man by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, that is by works, the covenant of works, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, whereby he freely offereth, offers not sinners life and salvation, through Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved and promising to give all those that are ordained unto life in, in his, holy, his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. Now, this is the significant part of understanding covenantalism. In short, the covenant of grace then is made an overarching covenant out of which every other covenant in Scripture flows. Every other covenant is merely an expression of this covenant of grace within the system. Every other covenant, Noah, Abraham, David, and so forth, is merely evidence of this one covenant of grace. And it is this covenant of grace that provides unity, cohesiveness to Scripture. It stresses continuity, continuity among the people of God. 
Now, I want to make this note as well. The covenant of grace is seen as having a narrow and a broad sense. If the covenant of grace is spoken of uh, in a narrow sense, it's referring only to the elect, only to those who participate in this work of Christ, only those who are actually saved, only those who are actually in Christ, actually in union with him, actually have the Holy Spirit, actually will be called by, to faith and kept in Christ until the end of the age. That's a narrow sense. But covenant theology also sees a broader sense, which includes even children of the covenant who are born into households that have a covenant parent. This is a part of that continuity that they see with the nation of Israel as the people of God. And so that is why, for example, if you want to know practically what that matters, if you go to a Presbyterian church, then they will baptize their children. They will baptize them as members of the new covenant and participating in the new covenant, even though they know they do not yet have faith. They would say this is a broader sense of the covenant of grace. That this is a broader way that the covenant is to be understood. As a matter of fact, one from a covenantalist said this, we regard covenant children before profession of faith and all who make a credible profession of faith as Christians until they prove otherwise. And so there is one distinction there. Now what does covenantalism then teach about the relationship between Israel and the church? Covenantalism holds this. And this, this big idea of God's people under the covenant of grace, that Israel is a part of God's program that functions essentially as a foreshadowing of the church, as a symbol even of the church, as a type of the church. The church then, according to covenantalism, is a fulfillment of God's plan, the mystery revealed, and it encompasses all of God's people of all time. So if you were to read older Puritan writers or some, David is a part of the church. Israel is part of the church. There's no distinction between uh, within the church of, uh, in the, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The church did not begin after the coming of Christ. The church has always been present and always has encompassed those who are in covenant with God. Believers and unbelievers, and again, that's why children are baptized. Covenantalists see the conditional nature of the Mosaic Covenant, and this will mention it's important because there are different kinds of covenant. There's an unconditional covenant, which is acknowledged. Those are the kind of covenant with God made with Abraham. He says, this is what I'm going to do. When he ratified that in Genesis 15, only God passed through the, the elements. Essentially, God was binding himself to its fulfillment. And that's why Israel and all of her sin and all of her disobedience was never fully cast off by God because it wasn't dependent ultimately on their faithfulness, but on the faithfulness of God. This is emphasized again by the writer of Hebrews. But here is simply to say that is an unconditional covenant. In other words, God made it, God will fulfill it, done deal. There's no more discussion. The covenant of, through Moses, the Mosaic covenant, was seen as conditional. And it was conditional. Basically, it was like, you obey me, you will be blessed, you will be in the land, here's all the good things that will come. You disobey me, and here's all the bad things that will come. The curses, and as we know, they ultimately fell prey to all the curses because a key distinction in that covenant is that it came with the command but not with the power to obey that command. And that stands in contrast to the new covenant. However, uh, one has helpfully noted this in terms of our understanding of this nature of the covenants, whether it's conditional or unconditional. He says this, and I quote, The conditionality was not attached to the promise, but only to the participants who would benefit from these abiding promises. Let me clarify that. It's simply to say this, that the old covenant was conditional. 
But the condition was essentially this. The, the Mosaic covenant was an offshoot of the promise that God made to Abraham. I'm going to make you a nation. I'm going to give you a people. I'm going to bring you into a land. And you're going to be a blessing to all of the earth. You're going to mediate my will and my glory to all of the nations. That's the purpose that is going to come from the descendants of Abraham. Ultimately, when they were formed into a nation, the nation of Israel. Taking that name even from the change of Jacob's name. And so there was the promise. And so then when they came to the Mount Sinai, they came to the place where God gave his law through Moses, who was ordained as the leader of that nation. That's where the law was given and the conditions were laid out before the people and the requirement of them to have fellowship with God. However, even in that, there was... The evidence of the unconditional promise, the mere fact that God, even though Israel at that time was separated from him, not merely in the nation, but they were an evil nation. That's why he was angry with them for 40 years as they wandered into the wilderness. And yet God, faithful to his covenant promise to Abraham, put his presence in the midst of them in the tabernacle, later in the temple, that he put his presence with them and made a way that Israel, though fallen and though sinful, could have fellowship with him through the priesthood, through the sacrifices, through the day of the atonement, and so forth. And so that covenant was present with them. But the conditionality of it was essentially this, not the relationship that God had with Israel, but with this, with the enjoyment of the blessings of the covenant. That was what that quote was getting at. In other words, the relationship with Israel was already established. That's why he delivered them. That's why he put his presence in the midst of them. However, the enjoyment of this relationship depended on the obedience of the people themselves. As a nation, when the king was righteous, there was blessings. And when they, as a nation, were generally obedient to the covenant, there was blessings. When he wasn't, there were cursings. But then each individual on top of that knew the blessings of spiritual fellowship, the blessing of forgiveness. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, whose transgressions are forgiven. Psalm 84, how the, the individual believing Israelite longed to be in the presence of God, to have fellowship with him, to be, have his nearness, to be near to him. The presence of God is the fullness of joy. The experience of that part of the covenant depended on the individual's particular faith, the reality of it. And so the blessings of that covenant were dependent on obedience and true faith, but the covenant itself, the reality of God's establishing a relationship then was secure because of his promise to Abraham. Now they would hold then as, as well that Jesus Christ then is currently ruling from the promised throne of David. Now let me get here. How does that really affect then the understanding of Scripture? And this is the primary point really. One says this, thus covenant, so covenant, this is a relation to hermeneutics, our understanding of interpretation. So the covenant theology, when done rightly, this is from a covenantalist, covenant theology, when done rightly, provides a sensitive hermeneutic for discovering how all scripture is profitable for teaching and training God's people. In other words, our understanding of the covenant of grace, this overarching covenant, beginning in Genesis 3.15 and defining every other covenant in the people of God, is how we are to understand all of Scripture and God's promises to his people. The core hermeneutical principle then is this, that the New Testament in which this covenant of grace reaches a climax in the revelation of Christ has priority in how we understand the Old Testament. Let me fill that out just a little bit. 
That means then, as I noted earlier, that the history of Israel is a type or a foreshadowing of the church. The church is the fulfillment of all of the promises that were given to Israel. It doesn't replace Israel, it doesn't supersede Israel in God's plan, but it fulfills all of those promises in a way that was greater than Israel could have ever imagined. For example, let me give you one example of this. The prophetic anticipation of a regenerate Israel dwelling in the land promised to the fathers, they would say, is no longer limited to the land in Palestine, to the Middle East, to those small little borders that were revealed to the nation of Israel before the coming of Christ. Now that promise reaches a greater fulfillment in the promise of inheriting the earth, everything. So therefore, the promise of the children to honor their mother and father and they'll inherit the land is now in Ephesians 6 that they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Jesus explains, and they say, see, that is then a fulfillment that's even greater. It doesn't take away that promise, it just makes it better. The promise of David reigning from his throne over a national Israel in the land is now realized in its beginning phase in the church, in the church. And so they would see that then in Ephesians 1.20, where it says that, Speaking of Christ, he was seated at his right hand, the Father, in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Now let me just summarize it then in this way. In the end, covenant theology has some strong points and works nicely as a system. But I would say then it's ultimately, at least this is our position, while acknowledging these are, these are extensive discussions, is ultimately unsatisfying and unconvincing on two grounds. And that's this. First, it makes an implied but not explicit covenant the foundation and priority of all of Scripture and how we interpret it and how we understand its unity. And secondly, it fails to account for and do justice to the consistent and plain meaning of Scripture, specifically future prophetic anticipation. That means then if you are a covenantalist and you read all of these promises in the Old Testament to the nation of Israel, they're not really promises specifically to the nation of Israel that will be realized them at some point in the future, even though they are promises made by the prophets after the exile and looking to that time after the exile. But rather, they are now meant something different but greater, that it's the earth. And so Israel, a Jew, could not look at those promises and say that they're going to be fulfilled like that. Now they'll just be heaven. And so we don't need to be in the land that doesn't fit into God's purposes on the earth. Now both covenantalism and dispensationalism have their difficulties, and that's why there's variations in each. But in the end... And and at least the estimation and position of this church is dispensationalism is the most consistent with the actual text of Scripture. Let me just briefly define dispensationalism. As with covenantalism, there's a strong emphasis on the biblical covenant. So we understand the central role that the covenants played with Noah, with Abraham, again, with David, with Moses, through Moses, with David, and in, in the new covenant. But not the central role of the theological covenants as purported in Covenantalism, that is the covenant of redemption, the covenant of works or creation, and the covenant of grace. Dispensationalism then does not use those as an interpretive grid, but 
holds that the plain meaning of Scripture consistently is to be applied uh, throughout and which will lead then to an understanding of God's future purposes for the nation of Israel on earth that's revealed to be for a thousand years ruling over all his redeemed on the throne of David. These are not ways of salvation, the two, the different uh, dispensations, but they are related to the definition of God's people and how things will end. Now, the idea of dispensations is recognized by both camps. It's a biblical word. We're not going to spend time on that. Uh, it is a word, for example, however, that's used in Ephesians 1.10 where he says that with a, speaking of God's intentions in Christ from eternity past, he says that he's summing all things up with a view to an administration suitable to the full, fullness of times. Administration is the word uh, out of which we get dispensation. The summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on earth. It has the idea then of an arrangement, of a plan, of management of the ideas. In terms of a biblical dispensation, then, here are some descriptions. A period of time during which man tested in respect of obedience to some specific revelation of the will of God. That's sort of a classic. In other words, that God had certain periods of time in which he was testing man. And in this test, man would either pass the test or fail the test. And so that would be one example. Uh, Isaac Watts, and I'll... Uh, defined a dispensation in this way. Yes, that's the hymn writer. The dispensations of God may be described more briefly as the appointed moral rules of God's dealing with mankind and as accountable to him for their behavior. A more broad definition and one that I would lean towards personally is this. A dispensation is a noticeable error, error, E-R-A, when God administers and deals with his creation in a unique way. Or another reflecting that says it this way. A distinguishable economy and the outworking of God's plan. In other words, distinctive periods of time that had characteristics that mark it out as a particular age in how God dealt with his people. So, for example, then, well, let me just give you some of the ways that's... What are some different dispensations? Darby noted seven. A dispensation of paradise to the flood. Uh, dispensation under Noah, Abraham, another one under Abraham, then Israel, then the Gentiles, the Spirit, the Gentiles and the Spirit, and the Millennium. Others see four, a period of time from the patriarchs to Sinai, from Moses to Messiah's ascension, uh, from the time of the church to Messiah's return, and then the Millennial and the Eternal. However, it's important to note this, that identifying the specific dispensations is not an important part of dispensationalism. That might surprise you. <laughs> it actually isn't. Uh, those things are arguable. They're, they're there. They're, there are some cl- clear ways in which God worked out his will. So, for example, he says in, in Romans chapter 5 that man sinned, but not in the same way that Adam sinned. So there was a time where God worked through the patriarchs in the world, and we have a uh, an interesting time there. And then there was a way that God worked through the Mosaic Covenant when Israel was formed as a nation. There's a way that God works now through the church with the coming of the Spirit and so forth. That's, each one of those would be examples of dispensations. But no, that isn't really important to dispensationalism. Uh, it's not important really at, at all. Uh, rather, dispensationalism is defined by a more consistent literal hermeneutic in relation to prophecy. Really what marks out dispensationalism is to see a distinction from that hermeneutic or way of understanding God's uh, promises to the nation of Israel 
that it leads to a distinction between national Israel and the church in terms of God's purposes through them. God has distinct purposes then, as the dispensationalist holds, to national Israel that are unique to them. Purposes that the church participates in but does not do away with. In other words, dispensationalists understand a complete and literal fulfillment of the promises to Israel that the church will participate in but does not fulfill. Let me give you one quote. Dispensationalists emphasize the complete and literal fulfillment of both the spiritual and physical promises of the biblical covenants. They do not see physical and national promises as inferior types that must be spiritualized or fulfilled non-literally. So here's how that works out in relationship to hermeneutics. Both covenantalists and dispensationalists claim and hold to an historical grammatical. Now, for some of that's a new term. It simply means this, that we understand literature as God meant it to be understood. We understood it in its historical context, in the actual words that are used. That's the grammar part. And understanding in to whom it was written and the time it was written and those words and meaning are defined by the context of the document itself. That's essentially historical grammatical. In other words, what... We don't ask the question, what does it mean to me? We ask the question, what did it mean to Moses? What did it mean to Paul? What did it mean to Peter? What did it mean to those who would have heard it? That's historical grammatical exegesis uh, and hermeneutics. And so that is an, both would hold to that. However, there is a discussion about what does that actually mean in terms of being literal, taking the text literally? So sometimes if you hear the discussion, it is said that dispensationalists take scripture literally and covenantalists take it non-literally or spiritualize it. And so, but that's not completely true. Both take a literal understanding. That's why they have the sufficiency and authority of scripture and so forth. Um, really, it's a discussion of what constitutes literal interpretation. What constitutes literal interpretation? Now, again, both understand that there's different kinds of genres in Scripture. We'll talk about that when we get to Revelation, that there's figures of speech, there's metaphor, there's hyperbole, and so on and so forth. There's different ways that language is used that, that is still literal. In other words, we have a literal interpretation and we understand God doesn't have wings and so forth. And, and again, we'll talk about that more when we get to Revelation. How are we to understand the language of Revelation? But really, it comes down to this. Does literal hermeneutics encompass the fact that this overarching covenant of grace is to redefine the promises that were given to the nation of Israel, or do we allow those to stand on their own? On their own. Let me, let me make that a little clearer. A dispensationalist, and that would be the position of Newtown Bible Church, argues that each Old Testament passage must be understood in light of what the author meant to that original audience. That is the idea of dispensationalism. So that would be a key tenet that we would hold to and say it can be added to in the sense of its understanding and so in its, in its uh, fulfillment, but it doesn't take away what it actually meant to the nation of Israel when it was given to them. In other words, land means land. Christ on his throne in the land in Jerusalem means Jerusalem. That's what it means. That would be position. Uh, one said this, dispensationalists believe all scripture harmonizes with other scripture, but no Bible passage transforms, transcends, spiritualizes, redefines, or reinterprets any other scripture passage. 
So those words don't mean something other than what they meant. That's a key point. Secondly, it holds this, that the New Testament does not have hermeneutical priority of the Old Testament. In other words, we don't go to the New Testament, see what it says, and then, re, then reinterpret what God really meant to the Jews. That would be very important. We say, no, the Old Testament stands on its own. Those prophecies stands on its own. Although the New Testament does bring clarity, it reveals the mystery, but it doesn't take away what was originally meant. So Old Testament passages that speak of Israel and their future are not meant to be interpreted typologically or spiritually, but in anticipation of a literal fulfillment, specifically that a regenerate Israel will live in a national Israel in a renewed land on a regenerated earth during a literal earthly reign of Messiah for 1,000 years. That's what we hold. And actually, a covenantist will say, if you take a plain meaning of Scripture throughout, that's what you will end up with. They just don't think you should do that. They think that's, that's a wrong use of interpretation. But they acknowledge that as well. So, for example, when God says through Ezekiel in Ezekiel 37... That they will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived. They will live on it. We take that to mean the land that was given to Jacob. And that was reaffirmed by the prophets. The relationship of Israel then to the church is the people of God. How did we as dispensationalists understand that? And I know this is a lot this morning. Every message isn't like this. This is hopefully helpful in the big picture. But let me give you this. And then we'll wrap this up here soon. And then we'll take it over into its relationship to other things later. Uh, how does it relate to Israel and the church? Well, one says this. Futuristic premillennialism understands that the identity of Israel does not expand to include the Gentiles. Instead, the people of God expands to include Gentiles alongside believing Israel. Now, that's simplified as this. Is that the church does not become Israel. The church becomes and the Gentiles together with believing Jews, though rejected as a nation, individual, there are individual believing Jews, they become a part of the people of God, but it doesn't make Israel not Israel. It doesn't make the promises to national Israel anything less than promises to national Israel. Um, but instead, we are the one people of God, and that's made to include both Israel and the Gentiles who are brought in to participate in new covenant realities, not by replacing, fulfilling, becoming more than what national Israel is, but to, alongside them, inherit these blessings. Now, uh, I had some passages to look at, but uh, we're going to pick it up with there and not spend the same time as we did this time uh, in terms of just a lot of not being in the text of Scripture. This is meant to be an overview. We'll look at this now specifically at the text of Scripture, and what we'll do next week is look at that as how that relates then to our understanding of the end times, to such things as amillennialism, premillennialism, millennialism, postmillennialism, uh, mid-rapture, pre-rapture, post-rapture, you know, all of those kind of things. Uh, and, and I'll do that simply, and I'll put some charts to make it easier. Um, and then hopefully bring us to an understanding of what is God's purpose for this world? What is a way that we would understand God's purpose in the world? And that means then, how do we interpret what we see around us? How do we interpret national treaties? How do we interpret government policies? By the way, as you know, dispensationalism has been a major influence on American public policy, international policies. Uh, it's not a, this isn't an isolated little issue. 
it frames how the Christian influence on the government of America has had massive implications to our relationship to the Middle East and to Israel. That's waning, but it has been a huge part of it. So these are not small issues. So hopefully you'll come back next week uh, <laughs> and go, man, I can't sit through that again. I, I don't want to do it, and I wrestled with even taking the time to do this, but, but we hear these terms, and, and I think it's helpful, and hopefully in the big picture will be helpful as we look at more specifically at text of Scripture, which we'll do next week, um, as we, we fill out a little bit more on the dispensational side and then look at its implications. But overall, I want to emphasize this, that this is a discussion among the people of God and what is held and what is to be at the center of our concern in all of these things is that Christ is returning. Christ is returning. And even though we as Christians can have different understandings of particulars and specifics, we do so as the body of Christ. We do that together. So even as we come to the Lord's table, we share the Lord's table as covenants, as dispensationalists, and yes, even as Calvinists and Arminians and those who are mature and immature and all along the rest. But everybody who belongs to Christ is a part of the body of Christ and is gonna share a future with Christ in his presence forever. And that's what we celebrate in part in the Lord's table this morning. So let me pray and then uh, as the men pass out the elements, you can pray and, and prepare your hearts to remember these glorious truths together. Father, thank you for giving us your word. And your word is high and it is deep and it is profound. Woe are we that we think we could exhaust every part of it. You are the infinite God and it comes from your infinite mind. And even as we read in Romans 14, we, we though dealing with a different issue, we are to accept one another in Christ. And the core issue of our fellowship and relationship to one another isn't our particular understandings, of specific doctrines, but rather our love for one another in Christ. The only doctrines that are unnegotiable are those that declare you as our holy creator, that declare us as made in your image but fallen and ravished by sin, that declare the Son of God, eternal Son of God, equal with God in every way, who took on flesh for our salvation, for our redemption, who lived fully as a man without sin, who went in perfect obedience to the cross as our substitute, who bore the just wrath of God designed for us, for us, who rose from the grave and defeated death, who appeared to the apostles and over 500 at one time and others for a period of 40 days, who ascended back to your right hand to where you now make intercession for us and who is returning to take us to yourself and to establish justice and righteousness once and for all and for all eternity. Those are the glorious truths we celebrate. Those are what unite us as brethren in Christ. And it is those things I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would seal and unfold to our hearts in these next few moments together. And I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.